This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. BFM 89.9, the business station. My name is Rich Bradbury. This is Matt Splained. A couple of weeks ago, we brought you the breaking news that after a mere 100 years of development, the era of the flying car might finally be upon us. This week, we're continuing our journey into the world of machines as Matt Armitage tells us why science is slick. So you really do yearn for the day that machines will replace us, don't you, Matt? Hey, Richard. Um, you know, I yearn for the day that machines will do all of the dangerous and dirty jobs. I mean, that's what they're there for, so that, you know, humans don't have to breathe in toxic dust or fumes while they're working or, you know, kill their bodies carrying uh, heavy loads or doing mind-numbing repetitive tasks that uh, end up giving them, you know, RSI and all sorts of other disorders. You know, if we looked back to the beginning of 2020 and imagined how quickly automation might escalate over the next few years, we probably never believed that we could have gotten to this point so quickly. You know, we've got robot janitors sanitizing hospitals and malls. We've got all of these staffless or cashierless supermarkets and convenience stores. And of course, we have the uh, maybe slightly less welcome sight of police robots on the streets of Tunisia and robot warning dogs in Singapore uh, that are used as part of their COVID mitigation strategies, or, of course, the growing ubiquity of facial recognition systems, which is something we've talked about this year, or that realisation by manufacturers that in order to guarantee continuity that their, their plants, their manufacturing plants, have to be operable with minimal on-site human interaction and intervention. So this doesn't. Uh, this isn't just about automation. It's also about autonomy. Yeah. So our first story is about and an autonomous walking excavator, uh, or what my farm friends in the UK would call a digger. Uh, not something <laughs> that we typically cover on this show, but you know we should, considering the size and importance of the construction sector. When you look at any construction site, you know, there are huge amounts of complicated machinery, but by and large, the bulk of the work still seems to be done by an army of people. And while some of that equipment is autonomous or remote operated, uh, for example, uh, some of the enormous dumper trucks that you find at mining sites or certain cranes on construction sites, uh, and even some of the bigger harvesting equipment on those ginormous farms that they have in countries like Australia and China. Although, you know, I, I guess that doesn't really count as uh, construction, but you, you kind of get the point. Uh, what's a walking excavator? Oh, okay. Well, uh, a normal excavator has caterpillar tracks or maybe very large wheels and has that crane type thing with a scoop bucket on the front. Walking excavators were developed for working on hillsides and unlevel ground. So uh -huh. they have, yeah, they have hydraulic legs with the uh, wheel, a smaller wheel at the end, and they can essentially lean into the ground that they're working on. So typically the kind of work they're used for tends to be quite dangerous because the operator is in a precarious situation, say, 
on a hillside. So there's a big advantage for this type of machinery to be remote operated at the very least and autonomous at the very best just to protect those human workers. Is autonomous such an advantage here? Well, if you're looking at it from an employment point of view, then obviously remote operated is going to be better. But uh, if you're a, a business owner and you want to reduce labor even further, then autonomous may you know, look like the best solution. But there is a shortage of construction workers in some countries. And of course, autonomous machines work much longer hours than puny humans. But that autonomy uh, can also lead to other forms of cooperative working, either with other autonomous machines or human laborers. In any case, the important part is not so much that we need one, but that we have one. And uh, no joke here, it's called the HEAP, uh, H-E-A-P, which stands for Hydraulic Excavator for an Autonomous Purpose. You can see they came up with the name first and kind of... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, it was built by a Swiss-German team who converted a, a normal walking excavator and uh, used it to complete a number of tasks autonomously without any human interaction. So it's like the self-driving car of tractors. Well, you're not too far off. You know, it's a mixture of artificial intelligence and detection systems like LiDAR, which allow it to build a, a 3D picture of the surrounding areas. So they used it to construct a four meter high dry stone wall. That's a pretty good accomplishment. Uh, they yeah. got it to move some trees around as though it was doing landscaping. And they also used it to excavate a trench that was full of Second World War era abandoned ammunition. And I think it's the the roles like that where it really comes into its own for me, uh, you know, whether it's nuclear contamination like at Fukushima, uh, the polluted wastewater retention ponds that flood from time to time in the United States, or simply things like mining settle. Uh, this kind of tool may turn out to have a significant societal impact which is not something you often get to say about construction equipment. Uh, the finished buildings, yes, but not normally the methodology of actually getting there. Now, important question, Matt. Um, where can I buy one? Well, it's still proof of concept uh, at this stage. Plus, I don't know if you've got <sighs> working for it. Uh, but, you know, there's nothing to stop you creating your own. Uh, all you need are a few LiDAR sensors, uh, a bit of artificial intelligence, and you know, a walking excavator, stuff that most of us have at the uh, back of the garage gathering dust. You could say we're breaking new ground with this story on Matt Splained. Uh, I have to apologise to everyone. I made Richard say that. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, I've mentioned that we often ignore stories like this. So this next story is about something else that I would typically overlooked for this show, which is uh, football. Uh, I was banished from the UK for not enjoying football, a bit like you, I think, Richard. Mm. Uh, exiled ever to wander the earth, a soccerless wraith. You do like a bit of drama, don't you? Well, if I just said a computer just taught another computer to play football, that sounds a bit boring, really, uh, even though it's actually really very clever. So researchers at uh, the Google-adjacent AI developer DeepMind have used their supercomputers to teach digital people to play the game. See, that's why I say things like human people, because sometimes mm -hmm. we talk about digital people. So 
if you play soccer video games, then you'll be familiar with the kind of animation and players that are, are created by this simulation. They were divided into two teams of players. At the start of the simulation, the players just wobbled and staggered around the pitch. So the first thing they had to learn was to stand up and run. And this was done by training them using motion capture data from actual soccer players. And the system then used reinforcement learning, where successful actions are rewarded to train the players in basics like kicking the ball, dribbling, passing, and shooting at the goal. Sounds like I could have done with that at school. Um, but how long did it take them to learn? Well, you'd say that. I was put off sport because uh, at, at primary school, uh, I was putting the gloves on at cricket to be a wicketkeeper and the uh, the teacher bowled down and hit me in the face with the cricket ball. That was it wow. for good sport. But anyway, <laughs> uh, considering uh, the old uh, aphorism, uh, don't run before you can walk, the uh, soccer players, uh, like I said, they had to be taught to stand up and walk. So within about 24 hours, they could run, uh, they could get up if they were knocked down, and they'd learn to keep possession of the ball while they were doing those things. But at this point, they were really only concentrating on the action they were carrying out. They weren't thinking ahead, not even one step or two steps. So they weren't able to work as a team. If a player had an opportunity to shoot, it would just go ahead and do so, even if its teammate was in a better position to score. Mm. So it took the players about three days to learn the basic rules of the game, but it took about 10 days of training before the players really started to think ahead and work as a team. Look, I know neither of us are uh, expert on the game, but I'm, I'm pretty sure there's supposed to be more than four players on a pitch. Well, obviously, this is a, a lim limitation of the simulation at this point, and the players were taught a very simplified version of the game. For example, they weren't taught what a foul was. It was the thing my teacher did with a cricket ball. Um, <laughs> but I guess because there's a moral component uh, to that action as well as a behavioral one, so it's hard to, to teach. And they had to essentially create a force field around the pitch for the players to understand the boundaries. They had to understand they couldn't cross those lines. Okay, so the autonomous excavator I, I can understand, uh, as deeply boring as it might be. Uh, but maybe you could explain why somebody would want to do this. Well, the key here is that the players weren't simply programmed how to play, as they would be in a typical video game. They were a blank canvas, and they learned how to play using that reinforcement learning approach. In a sense, things like this, it's being done to, to see how far we can push machines when it comes to this process of self-learning. More importantly, uh, for those machines to help us in the future, they have to be able to assist in problems that perhaps we can't adequately explain. And football makes a, a good model because it's uh, complex? Yeah, it involves a, a lot of incredibly complex calculations and real-time variables. You know, there's a lot of physics involved in chipping a ball over to your colleague to send it into the goal. So if we go back to that idea of the excavator, ideally you would want the AI running that machine to be predictive, to know that it was about to rain or a storm was about to hit, to have an idea how a slope might move, uh, to know what uh, humidity or water might have done to the ammunition in the trench, and to adjust uh, and make decisions on the fly just like a person would. 
So although there may not seem to be a connection here, we can only make the machines as good as the brains that control them. All right. On that note, when we come back, machines creating the next generation of machines here on Matt Splained on BFM 89.9. Building Future Malaysia, BFM 89.9, The Business Station. BFM 89.9, The Business Station. This is Matt Splained. I'm Rich Bradbury. Now, so far, today's episode has been full of tractors and football. It's beginning to sound like uh, Matt Armitage's childhood. I mean, you say that as a joke, but it is actually true. You know, uh, me and my brothers, we used to play on and around farm equipment when I was a kid. Uh, I mean, you probably wouldn't be allowed to do that now, but back then, you know, there weren't as many rules and people didn't have as many fingers. Uh, And, you know, I I have to say, uh, I really enjoyed the recent show uh, Clarkson's Farm uh, on, uh, I think, Amazon, which was all about plowing and seeding and uh, harvesting uh, and all the disasters that go along with it, amplified by that Clarkson factor. And I think a lot of people seem to have agreed with me. It's apparently the streaming platform's most watched show ever. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah. So something else that was a big part of my childhood, other than farming, was the sci-fi classic, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. That's an mm. incredible segue. Uh, did you ever read or watch that when you were growing up? I, I did. A towel is about the most massively useful thing an interstellar hitchhiker can have. Did you know that? Yeah, I, I take a towel with me everywhere to, to this day. And, you know, sorry if uh, we're giving away any spoilers here, but, you know, it's 40 years old already, so get yeah, over it. Uh, yeah, one of the... Uh, best bits for me at least is when a a computer called deep thought is uh, constructed by the magratheans to solve the ultimate question of life the universe and everything and deep thought tells its creators that it will take seven and a half million years to solve this conundrum 42 yeah the answer is 42 so you know douglas adams has always been a huge inspiration for me douglas adams contractors uh deep thought tells the descendants of its creators that what they really need to know is the question but deep thought isn't powerful enough to quantify that question so it sets about designing and building its own successor and that turns out to be a biocomputer called earth which is blown up by the vogons to build a hyperspace bypass shortly before its calculations were completed so this has always been one of the fundamental questions in computing and artificial intelligence not the 42 part but should we trust the machines to create a more powerful and next generation version of the machine that they are. And it's an idea that runs through science fiction, uh, whether it's satire, as much as it runs through the dystopian vision of franchises like Terminator and The Matrix. Someone's brought this dystopian vision to life, haven't they? Well, yes, or someone is looking for the question that's answered by 42. Uh, Unsurprisingly, it turns out to be Google, which has started using its own AI chips to develop its next generation chips with quite astonishing results. So this is 
probably something that a lot of people don't know, not because it, it's a secret, but just because, again, it's boring. Uh, because of the scale of everything that Google operates at, it designs and manufactures its own chips and creates its own software, which makes sense. You know, when you've got data centers and AI and all those search results to serve, you're not going to be buying things off the shelf. And Google is always hungry for the speed that better chips bring? Not in a sinister or nefarious sense. I mean, again, you look at the scale that the company works at. Any incremental improvements in chip design, whether it's in terms of speed, energy consumption, or even adaptability to certain tasks, that's going to have a massive effect on their overall business. And because of the complexity of those chips, it has separate teams working on different sections of them. So each team is tweaking variables in the section that they're assigned to, and then they come together and try and piece all of these bits together a bit like a jigsaw. So this is a process that can take months or even years, depending on the complexity of the chip they're developing. How much faster are chips at designing better chips? Well, this is where it's genuinely, I was going to say the word scary, but I think I'll stick with the phrase jaw-dropping. Uh, the researchers at Google used the latest version of Google's Tensor Processing Unit, which is designed to run neural network algorithms. So in just six hours, the AI was able to design chip schematics that equaled those produced by the human design teams over several months. So we're potentially looking at shortening the design periods for new chips from years to days. So for, for Google, a large part of this is about mm -hmm. cost savings. Being able to implement new chip designs even a few days early can save them enormous sums of money. But shortcutting that process by months or years could equate to absolutely vast savings. I've got a question. Is today's theme uh, boring but important stories? In a sense, I guess it is. You know, this is something that should be a much bigger story than it is. If companies, yeah. yeah, you know, if companies other than Google can use or can license the use of similar design methods, imagine where that might take us. You know, again, if we go back to Towels and the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, Marvin the Paranoid Android, uh, his refrain of here I am, brain the size of a planet, and then he's dispatched to do some menial task, you know, could this accelerate DeepMind's ability to teach two full teams of footballers how to play and act as a team? Does it mean that uh, teams of autonomous excavators could go out demining in the world's former war zones? Could it lead to better modelling of climate and weather patterns or give advance warning of the kind of building collapse that we've seen recently in Miami? So without hyping the outcomes, this is a story that really should be all over the news. Okay, uh, well, let's go from on TV to in TV, video conferencing, to be precise. Yeah, uh, are you starting to get sick of reading or watching interviews where everyone says, I'm so glad we don't have to Zoom anymore. It's so much better to be able to meet in person. Uh -huh. uh, you know, newsflash to the first worlders, a lot of us are still locked down and Zooming or avoiding Zooms in my case. Uh, 
So anything to make that experience more bearable, I think, is a worthwhile addition. Researchers at the University of California, San Diego, one of whom is a computer music specialist who was frustrated by the limitations of video conferencing software when it came to giving his online lessons, uh, and most importantly about the lack of nonverbal cues that we can get from other people when we're using the platforms. Mm, Such as uh, who's looking at who? Yeah, essentially, when you're in a meeting and someone's talking, you don't really know who they're directing their attention towards. So you get Mm. those awkward moments when people ask questions and nobody responds because nobody really knows who the question was addressed to. And to fill that silence, a bunch of people jump in at once. And of course, a lot of the uh, video platforms will only prioritize one voice at a time. So online meetings are full of these behavioral knots that have to be untied. And that can be very frustrating. Boring. (laughs) Yeah, we're going back to that theme for today. Uh, I don't know how many times we've said boring. (laughs) Uh, So the guys at San Diego used machine learning to create an algorithm that tracks the eye movement of the speaker. So depending on how we have our screens or our views set up, different participants are in different places on different screens. So the algorithm works to identify where on the screen the presenter is looking and which person that correlates to, which is a fancy way of saying who the speaker is looking at and hoping that uh, one of your colleagues hasn't decided to take a shower with the bathroom door open, as I I think we saw from a a Spanish council meeting, Uh, because then it can inform uh, those people that the presenter's eye of Mordor is suddenly upon them. (laughs) And I know that it sounds like such a small and insignificant thing, but the thing about nonverbal cues is that while they are small, they're anything but insignificant. They are our feedback mechanism, which is why we find it so weird when there are people that we struggle to read. And to give you an idea of how effective the makers hope this will be, the computer music specialist, Shlomo Dubnov, hopes that it will allow a conductor to direct an entire orchestra during remote practices. So we're talking about that level of accuracy to be able to deal with over 100 people on a screen. Fantastic. Now, um, one last story. Uh, Can we have a machine that's actually about a machine rather than software. Okay, this is a uh, cool one about pain management. Again, not a phrase you often get to say. Uh, We have a a lot of impending health crises. Uh, Some of them are unanticipated, like the effects of long COVID and the lifelong damage that some of the coronavirus sufferers are likely to experience. Other factors like longer life expectancies mean that people will be living for longer periods with persistent conditions. So we're expecting to see the incidence of chronic pain increase over coming years. Uh, Chronic pain can be hard to treat with medication. A lot of pain medications do have long-term side effects. Some like opioids can be effective in the short term, but the recipient quickly builds both a tolerance and a dependence. Uh, Mm. So we've already seen some non-medication based interventions, and there have been successes with treatments like uh, electrical nerve stimulation. Using implanted electrodes. Why do your stories always come back to putting sensors and stuff into people? Hang on. Um, Yes. Okay. Usually they have to be uh, implanted in the spinal cord under general anesthetic. I mean, Uh 
Uh, and there are usually clusters of the electrodes, so often up to 32, that send those electrical signals along the spinal cord to the brain. Uh, and these signals tell the brain to ignore or stop processing that pain. The surgery is complicated, and like anything that happens to your spine, it comes with risks. So they may even have to remove part of the spinal cord to fit the um, implants. So it's not a perfect solution. Scientists at the University of Cambridge have come up with a tiny implantable device made of plastic and gold sheets that, when it's rolled up, has a thickness of less than two millimetres. Does that mean it can be injected? Yeah, and that's the really cool thing about this. Uh, it's still at that testing stage. If successful, it means that patients could have a relatively simple procedure under local anaesthetic. It's implanted in the epidural space along your spine, and it can then be unfurled like a balloon by filling it with a tiny amount of air. Once in place, it then starts sending those signals that deliver pain relief because it actually wraps itself around that part of the spine. So how is it powered? Well, I think these are the kinks that they're still trying to work out at the moment. The most likely solution is that they'll use an implanted battery from which the implant would draw power by induction. So similar to those charging mats that some smartphones use. The team has successfully implanted the device into cadavers to prove that they can implant them without damaging the spinal cord, uh, not to try and reanimate the body. But there's a lot of work to be done before it can be trialled on living patients. If it does get to that stage, the hope and the expectation is that it should carry no more risk than receiving an epidural injection uh, during the labour part of pregnancy, which could result in thousands more people having access to medication-free pain relief treatment. And that's a pretty good outcome for such a tiny little machine. It certainly is. Thanks for that, Matt. That's my pleasure. So, uh, so long and thanks for all the fish. <laughs> Ladies and gents, you have, of course, been tuned in to Matt Splained here on BFM 89.9. If you missed any part of the show, don't forget you can download the podcast wherever you normally listen to your podcast from. I recommend downloading the BFM app. It's available from the Apple App Store or google play and don't forget you can find matt on instagram and twitter at culture matt you can also head over to culturepop.com for transcripts of these shows and information about culture pop and its consulting services bfm 89.9 the business station Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.